The sermon text this morning is Romans 5, 12 through 21. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation, but the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. For if, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification in life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Do you think that we evolve as people? I mean, do you think that we naturally change? I mean, are you here and you're thinking, well, you know, if you give me enough time, if you give me enough education, if you give me enough experience in life, if, if technology changes, do you think that we can really change? I mean, I, I don't know that if you do, I'm not sure that history would be on your side. Um, let me give you an example. In World War I, it was known as the, the Great War. It was known as the war to end all wars. They thought after the First World War that uh, there would never be war again. All these movements, these peace initiatives started up, more globalization towards peace. Nobody would want to go through the horrors of World War I. Nobody could imagine re-engaging in the same behavior uh, after such atro atrocities were seen. And yet within 30 years, it, the same people on the same land doing the same thing. I mean, do we really change? Uh, our text today, as kind of confusing as it was to hear in terms of the way it was written, it, it seeks to promote in us the hope that, yeah, we will change. Uh, but there's only going to be one change uh, that, that actually is effective in our life, and that's going to be that someone from outside of us has to come to us and live among us to change. Th that we are not going to be able to bind ourselves together and think that we're going to bring about some change. You know, th this passage, you know, the story about the Bible, if you, if you look at the whole Bible, you could really see it as a big rescue operation. You know, man is ruined in himself, and yet he's rescued from this man named Jesus. Now, the passage follows last week, and if you weren't here, what we talked about last week were the benefits of salvation. That, that he, here's what Jesus Christ has done. He has given us peace with God. He's reconciled us through forgiveness of sins. 
He's given us access to God that we now, unlike before, we can now approach God. He inclines his ear to us. I hope that has meant something to you this week that maybe it didn't the week before. But we even have a hope of glory. We have the hope that we'll be with God forever. And this in the midst of suffering. Why? Because God's salvation towards us is rooted in God's love. It's not in your performance. It's rooted in his love that he's justified, forgiven, that we have a new status as children of God. That's what the gospel does for us. When we come to this passage, this is a very difficult passage. Some scholars think that this is probably the hardest passage that Paul wrote in all of his letters. It's very difficult. So if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to keep them open because it is kind of bouncy back and forth. As it's being read, I kind of feel like a bit of a pinball machine, and I want to kind of go through it slowly. But, but here's what I would say the passage means in simple form. Man is ruined by the sin of Adam. We're ruined. And yet man is rescued by the righteousness of Christ. Man is ruined we see that all around us, and yet man can be rescued in Christ. So we'll just look at those two things. So look in 12 to 14 with me, because it really talks about the ruination of man. And you see where it starts. It starts with Adam. It starts in the beginning. It, there's kind of this three-step spiral into really what would be our ruination. So look with me at verse 12. He says this, Just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. So he starts with Adam. Adam is, but by the way, Paul sees Adam as a historical individual. He sees him as a literal person in space and time. So he's not, he's not kind of fictional character like, Winnie the Pooh, maybe you can learn some nice things about life from him, but he sees him as an actual person. And by the way, Jesus did as well. Uh, so we start with Adam, and how did we get to be where we are? Why do we have the problems that we have? Why can't we seem to change ourselves? Well, part of the answer is coming from understanding Adam. Adam was the first of our kind. He was the first one created. And, and he was given uh, the image of God. He was given the responsibility of God to steward this world. He was called to act as a vice regent so as to cause the world to flourish and to multiply. Now, I think when we speak about Adam, Adam just means mankind. It means humanity. So he's not just speaking about men here. He's speaking about the human race. They were put in the garden. There was no sin. There was no shame. There was no sickness at all. They had perfect fellowship with God. It was all very, very good. You can imagine how good it was. But now look where we are. What ruined it? What brought us to ruin? Well, we see there that sin came into the world through one man. By the way, you see sin kind of personified. It's like an individual. It, it, literally in Greek, it's sin invaded our world. It was an intruder in our world. And, and we see this story in Genesis chapter 3, when, when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit. Now, don't get caught up in the fruit. Like, what kind of fruit? It, it, the, the fruit's not the issue. It, the issue is that God gave them responsibility to steward the world. One thing they were called not to do, to take from the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Now, the reason God set that tree in there was to set the limits 
that God is the creator and he establishes what we do and what we don't do. He sets the bounds of our authority. Their sin was a desire to be like God. They didn't want the limits set where God set them. They wanted to be like God. They didn't want to have limits. Now, as children of Adam, we can all agree on that. I mean, you know this intuitively. The way that I can get your back up fastest is by saying, you can't do that. I don't want you to do that. Tell a child that. Tell anybody that. You see him straight. What do you, what do you mean you're telling me I can't do that? If I want to do that, I can do that. Even though practically we might not be able to. It, it just shows you our connection as a child of, of Adam. That, that we don't like God setting the limits. We don't like God saying, this is where I want you to walk. Even though we gave them every tree of the garden, that was not enough. I want that one. And you see that in your children. They haven't played with the toy in 18 years and someone else plays with it. That's the one I want right there. I want that one. So sin invades our world because we want to be like God. And it begins this process of ruining us. Because you notice what happens next. The second stage is found still in that same verse 12, where he says, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin. Death comes along with it. Now, now you must know that Adam and Eve dying was not inevitable. There had been no death. There had been no death. What Paul's telling us is death is a result of their sin. Now, earlier in Genesis chapter 2, 17, God did say, if you eat from this tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you will surely die. So we are to see that, that actually death itself is the result of sin. It's the penalty of sin. It's kind of like, just like night brings darkness in, so sin brings death into our world. Now, the Bible's very clear on what death is. Death is more than the cessation of our physical functions. It's more than that. What death is in the Bible is that you have been ripped apart from the one who gives you life. It's the beginning of the disintegration of all your relationships. That's what death is. It's much deeper, it's much more comprehensive than a physical stopping of the heart. It's the tearing away. You see it in Genesis 3 when they're torn apart from God. You know, so they loved God, they walked with God, and then after the sin, God exiles them out of the garden, and now they're scared of God. They're covering from God. They're, they're trying to hide from God. That's what sin does. It makes us silly. It makes us foolish to think that we can hide from God. But, but that's what sin does. It, 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 it disintegrates this relationship with God. But you also see it disintegrated the relationship between the husband and the wife. Now they're covering from each other. They're hiding from each other. They're blaming each other. I mean, if you know marital conflict, it was here first. It, it just disintegrates and works against the relationship. But it's also dis disintegrating the relationship of creation. Creation was to be a joy to labor. But now it's not. It's toil. It's painful. It's with the sweat of the brow. I mean, why do people come up with this idea of, thank God it's Friday? Because they're thinking about creation. They aren't. They should be. Work would have been incredibly satisfying. Now, not so. Why? Because we have ruined it. But not just our relationship with God and with each other and our relationship with the world, but our relationship with ourself. 
I, I mean, there is conflict that you have with yourself. There is this cognitive dissonance in your own mind. You know you aren't what you're supposed to be. You know you have conflict. What am I thinking? Why, why am I doing what I'm doing? Why can't I stop doing what I'm doing? Paul gives word to this in Romans chapter 7 when he says, I do that which I don't want to do, and I don't do that which I want to do. You know that feeling. It ruins us. It ruins life. We're, we're, we're angry. We even struggle with self-loathing. That's the ruin that we've talked about. That, that the sin, you know, sin invaded our world, and then death came along with it. But there's more. This third stage of human history that you see just in life is the fact that death spread to all men. Now, I don't need to prove that to you. I think that we all see that, that death spread to all men. Uh, you see it in Genesis chapter 4 when, when Cain kills Abel. But, but if you go to Genesis chapter 5, if you were to go there, here's what you'll read. It's a, it's a lineage of people. It's kind of this genealogy of all the people that had been created. And after each name, and he died, 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 and he died eight times. It's like the first obituary section of the Bible. They all died. They all died. There were no exceptions. The sin that entered our world, that brought death with it, now is spread to all people. This we know. But what I want you to see in the text that is what is the crux of Paul's argument. And I really ask you to put on your thinking caps with me here because it really gets a little bit complex, but I think it's very satisfying in the end. What he's saying is, look with me at verse 12. He says, Just as sin came into our world through one man, and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned. Now, now, in, in the Greek language, there's a certain verb tense there that indicates that sin was back with Adam. So in other words, he's, he, Paul is applying to all of us this guilt of Adam. He's saying, in a way, when Adam sinned, his children sinned as well. Uh, I'm not saying just we imitate him in sin, which we do that. We do sin, and, and we do it quite well. And maybe even better than Adam did it. We do imitate sin. But he's saying here that we participated with him in sin. You know, there's an old Puritan. He's real old, actually, but uh, about 350 years old. Uh, he said this, that, when, that in Adam's fall, we sinned all. In other words, we're all guilty with Adam. Now, I know in your mind right now, you're going to, how can that be? I wasn't with him. I didn't sin like he sinned. I mean, how can I be implicated for Adam's sin and guilt? Well, if you just hang with me for a little bit, I'm going to try to give you an answer now, but I'm going to give you one towards the end that I think will fill it out. But, but what he's saying here, Paul is painting a picture. He's saying that the human race is of what we call corporate solidarity. We are one. Adam is the head of humanity. He's the legal, he's the representative of all people. And that in his guilt, so we are bound up and caught up in his guilt. It's kind of like the tree, the oak tree from the acorn. It's all one. We're bound up with him in his guilt. Now, I know in your mind you're thinking, well, but that's not fair. 
That's not fair. And, and, and as Westerners and rugged individualists, I understand. We don't want to be blamed for someone else's sin. But I do want you to know that many cultures would not struggle with this idea. The idea of being one with a group and being responsible, that's understandable. I, I mean, people, many cultures, do not see themselves as whole apart from the group to which they belong. Uh, they're, part of, they're part of a clan. They're part of a tribe. They're part of a people. Uh, that, that as the people go, so they go. They don't look at themselves so ruggedly individually like we do. So you have a situation like Goliath and David fighting on the battlefield. I mean, the whole, the whole well-being of the nation of Israel was tied up in how David did. If David did well, they did well. If David didn't do well, they didn't do well. The Philistines, the same thing. In, in fact, even in Western culture, we kind of buy into this a little bit, I think. I mean, we, we have elected representatives. We elect men or women for our government, and they go and they make decisions, and those decisions do affect us. Uh, it, it does impact us. They can declare war, and, and our whole nation can be thrown into war by decisions that you may be totally opposed to, but you're still part of. So, th so that gives you a, a little bit of a glimpse, and Paul's trying to show us that in Adam we have sinned. I think he gives a better reason, though, in 13 and 14. Look with me in 13 and 14. He says, for indeed was, for he says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. And yet death reigned from Adam to Moses. I think Paul's trying to prove that we are guilty with Adam by showing us that even before a law was established, before the law was given by Moses, Men and women were still guilty. There was still death as a part of life. Now listen, if you look here, he says, he says before the law was given, but sin is not counted where there is no law. I, what I want you to know is there is sin and we've sinned. He's talking about this period of time where they didn't know the law, but that doesn't mean they weren't breaking God's law. So if you're driving down 540, you're new to the area, and you're going, everybody else is going 80, you're going 75, and you don't realize that you're breaking the law, but then you pass a sign on the side of the road and it says 70. Well, now you know that you've broken the law. So that's what he's meaning by this right here. He's simply saying that, that in that time frame between Adam and Moses, the law wasn't given in a formal way. But Paul's saying you're still guilty because of your relationship to Adam. Why? It says because people were still dying. If sin brought death and they didn't have the law that Adam had, why are they dying? So you have, for example, an infant. Infants die. Infants die, why? Not because they've sinned, as you and I may sin in action, but they're, they're dying. Death is still part of being part of the nature of Adam. That we're all in this corporate solidarity. We're all children of Adam. And therefore, when sin entered, it came with death and death to all. That's what Paul's painting. I'm going to explain more at the end of this because I, I know it's difficult to grasp. But if I haven't convinced you that we are bound up with Adam, would you not agree that there is the idea of sin being absolutely universal? I mean, there is none among us 
that have not sinned. There, there isn't one among us that, don't, that doesn't have a lineage to Adam. I mean, we are all. Now listen, many scholars think this verse or these verses speak to the nature of the depravity of man or original sin. When I speak about the depravity of man, when I say that we are all depraved, I'm not saying that we can't enjoy life. I'm not saying that we don't do nice things for people. I'm not saying that we're all as depraved as other people. I'm not saying that we can't invent things and can't, and can't share and enjoy love. When I speak about the depravity of man, I'm speaking about our moral inability to appeal to God with our lives. And he says, well done, you did well. That we do not have the moral fortitude to live in a way that God would look upon us and say, you've been a good child. Come, enjoy all the future glory that I've prepared for you. None of us can say that. What he's saying is that because we have Adam's nature, we have been morally ruined. Now, if you're there saying, no, you know, I've known some really good people in life. I'm sure you have. But history is not on your side. For us as a people trying to bind ourselves together, say, you know what, we're going to really reform our culture, we're going to change our lives, and we're going to be really acceptable to God. We're going to do it. There has never been a people that have done that. In other words, it's clear that we are ruined because of sin. And we're separated from God. Malcolm Muggeridge was a a British journalist of the 20th century, and he said these words, he says, The depravity of man is at once the most empirically verifiable reality, but at the same time it's the most intellectually resisted fact. We hate to hear that we are not good enough in our own power to please God. But that's what I'm asking you to accept. I'm asking you to accept the fact that because you have Adam's nature, because we all have Adam's nature, We are without hope. We're ruined apart from help. But even if you won't buy that from me, would you not at least buy the fact that we'll all die? I mean, we're pretty good in our culture to deny the reality that we will die. We can joke about it. We can not think about it, try to ignore it. We try to blunt the force of death. We have funeral directors. We have white sheets. We make it very clean We don't wash the bodies like they used to. We don't go dig the hole like they used to. We are blunting ourselves from the reality that our relationship to Adam brings about a universal brokenness that ends in death for all of us. For all of us. George Bernard Shaw was a British philosopher and he said these words. He says, the statistics on death are quite impressive. One out of one people die. We all do. We need to grasp this thought. We really do. Because only in our time and our culture have we been able to live in this candy land of thinking that day will never come. Few cultures have the freedom and the pleasures of being in that position. And it has not served us well. So this is the ruination of man. Just in verses 12 to 14, what Paul's saying is you as a people, all of us together, we are children of Adam and we are ruined. So what do we do? How is God going to save us? 
Well, that's where, of course, verse 15 comes in. But before you look at 15, I want you to see something really interesting. At the very end of 14, we're introduced to this idea that Adam did not simply fail as the head of humanity, but it says that he was a type of one to come. He's a type. That word type, that means he prefigured. He was a foreshadowing. He was pointing to someone greater. In other words, do you get what's happening? He says Adam was a type to come. God knew the fall would be. Do you realize that? God could have stopped it. God could have changed the whole dynamic. God planned the fall to show the glory of the Son. God planned ruination so that there would be a rescue operation where we would see Christ in all of his glory. And that is exactly what Paul's doing. He's trying to paint us in the same color. We see ourselves as children of wrath, children of Abraham, or children of Adam. What will we do? Well, there's a second and a greater Adam that will come. That's why we call 1 Corinthians as well. But that's why we call Jesus the second and greater Adam. Because one is going to come like Adam, but very different. Far greater and far better than this first Adam. The Adam of Eden spectacularly failed. But the Adam from heaven was spectacularly successful in rescue us. And that's what you see from verses 15 all the way to the end. You see this contrast. Let me just point out three areas where Adam from heaven, Jesus, is far greater than the Adam of Eden. And notice in verse 15 that where Adam brought death, Jesus is greater because he brings life. Look what he says. Through one man's trespass, Adam, many died, but the free gift of grace of the one man, Jesus, abounded to many. So Adam brought death. We've already seen that. We experience it. We bury friends and family. We know that Adam has brought death. But Jesus has brought this free gift. Now, what is this free gift? You know, we read it three times in this passage. And with no explanation, kind of teasing, what's the gift? What's the gift? It's like seeing a gift under the, under the Christmas tree, and, and you're just, what is in there? I'm so excited about it. Well, he answers it for us. In chapter 6, verse 23, he says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. So where Adam brought death, Jesus is greater because he's now bringing life that will never end to a people who know they're going to die. Is there anything better to hear than you will live forever without sickness, pain, and sadness? He has brought that. We ought to rejoice in Christ. For those of us here to think that whatever befalls us next week or next year, for the Christian, he has secured eternal life for us. Uh, but the second reason Jesus is greater is because he's not where Adam brought condemnation, Jesus brings justification or forgiveness. Look with me in verse 16. He says, For the judgment following one man's trespass brought condemnation. In other words, we're under the wrath of God. But the free gift brought justification. In other words, Jesus is greater. Why? Because we've passed out of judgment. Listen, we're children of Adam before coming to faith in Christ. And we're under the wrath of God. You may not feel that way. You may not feel like you're under God's wrath. Life may be very sweet for you. But at least according to the scriptures, because we're children of Adam, 
We are under the wrath of God. Paul says it this way, we're children of wrath. Or he says we're dead in our trespasses and sins. We may not feel that way, but please consider with a degree of suspicion how you may feel about yourself, at least as it relates to how God looks at you. Please don't think that between these ears we can just determine how God feels about us. We need to know what he thinks by what he's written. And he says, you're children of wrath. But Jesus brought justification. He brought a proclamation of innocence. You are innocent. Go free. Jesus has made it so that we'll never face the judgment of God. So all those scenes that you may think about or see when you die and you stand before God and he's there behind a big desk, that's not for you. You have an advocate. You have a savior. You have one who has borne the wrath of God and has been judged for you. That's why Jesus said, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He bore the wrath for us. This is why Jesus is greater. Not only has he brought it, he's earned it for us. And then the third reason he's greater is found in 17. And this is a little more nuanced here. The third reason he's greater is because he's establishing a new humanity. Notice what he says. If by the trespass of one man, death reigned over life, much more to those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness will reign in life. Do you see what's happening here? What came with Adam was a prisonership. We were imprisoned in our own sin and shame and ultimate death. That was the heritage of all of us. There was no way out of it. You couldn't not sin. You couldn't avoid facing God. But in Christ, he has brought a new life, a new life of grace. Where now, instead of death reigning over us, we, by grace, are now reigning over life. That's what he's done. What he's done here is he's made us fully human. He's making us fully human. What I mean by that is this. And I remember, he's changing us into being all that we were meant to be as God designed. To be fully human. I remember as a kid, my, my mother would often say, you know, stop acting like a bunch of animals. You know, and, and we probably... We're acting like a bunch of animals. But that's kind of a picture of what humanity is in the brokenness of God's image, that we've shattered God's image. What Jesus is doing by breaking the reign of sin is he's transforming us so that the image of God is being restored and now we're beginning to look like Christ. He's making us human as he is fully human. That's what he, that's what he means by we're going to reign in life with him and through him. So you see, this is why Jesus is greater. He's not only granted eternal life, he's not only granted eternal life for us in innocence, where we are not judged, but he's leading us to a life where we will reign with him in this world. He has given us a future and a heritage that is mind-numbing when you think about it. And that's what he goes on to say in 18 and 19, the rest of the chapter, he does that contrast back and forth. With Adam, this is what you have, death, condemnation, judgment. But with Jesus, you have life, you have forgiveness, and you have reigning forever with him. So what Paul's doing is he's saying, listen, there's this humanity under Adam where we are children of wrath, but God, and in ruin, but God in mercy has created a new humanity with Christ as the head, and we engage by faith. 
Listen, it's clear that death and sin are universal. But entering this humanity is not. You notice in 17 it says, those who receive the abundant grace. That we receive it, we seek it, we ask for it, we appeal, we exercise faith in this gift. That is how we move from the lineage of Adam to the lineage of Jesus. We place our trust in Jesus. Let me get back to the, the little bit of a struggle that many have with this teaching. You know, why have we been guilted with Adam's sin? This helps us understand it. If you do not see yourself as bearing the guilt of Adam, then how can you enjoy the union, uh, the righteousness of Christ? In other words, if you deny or if you reject that Adam's guilt has been put to you, then why would you think that the righteousness of Christ is given to you? They go hand in hand. You know, the, the one, if I cannot accept the fact that I am a child of Abraham in wrath, then how can I accept that I'm a child of God through Christ? That's why Jesus is a second Adam. In other words, it would be inconsistent. If, if guilt is imputed to me from Adam, then the righteousness of Christ can be imputed to me. So it, it begins with us understanding we are children of Adam, we are morally unable, and we do bear his guilt. And we accept that. But we plead with God to also impute the righteousness of Christ to us that we might be forgiven and established in a new lineage, in a new humanity. That's what he's speaking about here. The... The implication of guilt is met by the vindication of Christ's righteousness. That's the first thing to take away. What's it mean that those who receive? It means to place your faith and you enter this lineage of Christ. You enter a new humanity. But, but the second thing I would just draw your mind to from this passage is that you are to look to the gospel for people to change. In other words, even within Christianity, we often think if we just, for example, in Christian parents, new Christian parents, we think that, well, we're just going to teach our children the faith. We're going to teach them that this is what God wants us to do. And, and we begin to pile up these rules and regulations. They're Christian rules and regulations, by the way. But we pile them up, and we think that by knowing these things, and if we can just teach them, and if they can memorize, they're going to change. That's not the case. Why? Because they have a nature from Adam. And it's morally incapable. The gospel must bring about the change. And what the gospel does is it takes out the nature of Adam, it takes out the heart of stone, and it puts in a heart of flesh. It puts in a new nature. That's why Jesus said to Nicodemus, he says, you must be born again. Nicodemus was the quintessential holy man. I mean, he, he knew the law. He followed the law. He was, he, you won't find anybody more self-made righteous than him. And yet Jesus says, no, you don't have it. You're unable. You have an inability. You must be born again. This is why the gospel is so essential, because it takes out that heart of sin. Why can't you stop doing what you are doing? You can't apart from the gospel. So we can pile on all the Christian teaching we want to. That won't change. It's important to do, particularly at the day of two dedications. I want to encourage teaching Christian principles. But as a parent or even looking at yourself, you won't change apart from the power that comes to you in the gospel. 
Uh, the third truth I would draw from this would simply be that this does give us a heart for the nations. Listen, Christians are often criticized for being arrogant and intolerant because they bring the gospel and they ask other people of other faiths to believe in it. And we're often here, you know what, they got their own faith. Let them get the God in their own way. Well, if this is true, they don't have their own way. They're children of Abraham like you, children of Adam like you, excuse me. You know, that's the funny thing about racism. When you talk about even racism, we're all of the same race. We're all children of Adam. You know, the fact that we may have different colors and cultures and creeds and languages, we're all the same children of Adam. That's what the Bible teaches. And they're all under the wrath of God. That's why we take the gospel. That's why we have a love for the nations. They can, have, they, they can follow their religion to the T. It isn't adequate. They need the gospel to change them, to give them new life, and to bring them from the children of Adam into being a child of God. And, and, then, and then last, I would say this as a takeaway, would be, if this is true, if I've explained it correctly, then we have no fear of death. We have no fear of death. Now, what I mean by that is the actual walking through physical death is challenging for some, no doubt. But we have no fear of death. What I mean by that is what follows death. That, by the way, should be the real fear. It, it, it's not death, it's not the physical death, it's the spiritual, it's what's on the other side of that door. That is the most intimidating, or it should be. But there's no fear of death, why? Because Jesus has died and has been raised. In fact, he says it this way in Hebrews, therefore the children share in flesh and blood. He himself partook of the same things, that's Jesus that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to slavery. For surely it's not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham, who are the offspring of Adam who believe. There is no fear of death. So when you look at this passage, it's, it's very complex, right? He's trying to paint us into that that. Men are ruined because of the sin of Adam. But men and women can be rescued through the righteousness of Christ that's ours by faith. I, I know that's a lot. I shared it with Carol. She is, that's a lot of theology. Thank you for hanging with me on that. But this explains how God delivers us because we're going to go back out into that world of ruin you're living with people and you're living among people that are ruined and they are under the weight of sin and death and yet you come as image bearers of God the Christian is having their image changed to that of Christ you are the ones that reflect Christ to the world by your forgiveness, by your extension of kindness, by your willingness to sacrifice, by your repentance. You're showing that you're no longer like the others who are just part of the Adamic family, but now you're part of God's family. This is an in incredibly instructive passage, not just to give us hope for the future, but to give us a purpose for today and tomorrow. Let's pray right now, just silently. Let's pray for the grace to walk in this. 
and then I will I will close this in prayer.